Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode explores a story from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, as director Gareth Edwards discusses Rogue One, a Star Wars story. The first of the standalone anthology films set in the Star Wars universe, Rogue One takes place just before the events of the first Star Wars film made, Episode Four: A New Hope. As a heroic band of rebels embark on a deadly mission to acquire plans that could destroy the Galactic Empire's new superweapon, the Death Star. In addition to Rogue One, Mr. Edwards' directorial credits include the feature films Godzilla and Monsters, the movie for television End Day, episodes of the television documentary series Heroes and Villains and Perfect Disasters, and the short film Factory Farm. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Edwards spoke with director Christopher Miller who is currently working on the next Star Wars anthology film about a young Han Solo. Their conversation includes Mr. Edwards describing how he used real-life war photography as inspiration for the battle sequences, how he maintained a guerrilla style of filmmaking while working on a big-budget studio blockbuster, and how he tried to hew as closely as possible to the visual look and feel of the original Star Wars films. I brought my own water. <laughs> Thank you for staying for the midnight screening. It's pretty late. And I, I'm going to apologize. I'm Gareth. This is Chris. Hello. <laughs> but Chris has come straight from England on a flight and has probably stayed up for the last 48 hours straight doing working on the Han Solo film. So uh, it's uh, he's going to fall asleep in about three minutes, and we'll just carry on amongst ourselves. Yes. So Gareth can be his own moderator. <laughs> um, hi. Um, First of all, congratulations. Your movie is great. Uh, Cheers. Um, and uh, and so beautiful. Uh, and the first question I want to ask you is about how did your collaboration work with uh, Greg Frazier, your super talented uh, DP? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it began with the first conversation, which was, I, you know, getting to make a film like Star Wars, you get to meet all the talented people in the world, you know, who you'd ever want to meet. And um, I would start every conversation with, um, I did a very low budget independent film first, then I got to a big budget Hollywood movie. There's pros and cons to both. And this is all the problems I had when I got to do a big movie and I don't want to make, you know, I want to make new mistakes on this one. And, um, and started to explain all the sorts of things I did and didn't want to do, like, you know, having marks for the actors and, and letting it be a more organic and, and sort of more free form with uh, maybe even handheld camera and stuff like this. And I sat down with Greg and I started to do the same spiel. And he said, can I just say something? I was like, okay. And he said, um, look, I've done a lot of low budget independent films and I got to do some big blockbusters. And uh, I really think there's a middle ground that's really good. Like I want to be more organic. And, and he essentially said the spiel that I normally say back to me before I said it. And it was like, you had me at hello. <laughs> you know, it was, it was great. That's great. Um, 
it's really interesting because um you know with actors they get to see at work they get to see other actors act and uh and they get to see other direct different directors and their different styles of directing but as a director it's a very solitary experience you never really get a chance to see uh, how other people do it at their job um but i was lucky enough to visit you a few times on set and um and you were operating the camera which is something that i would be too afraid to ever do and you were really getting in there and like it felt very uh improvisational and sort of loose and spontaneous and i wanted to know like um how much of what you were doing was planned out and how much of it was something that you were trying to sort of find in the moment um it ended up probably being a you know a split i don't know what the statistic would be like 50 50 or something but we we i was really concerned about the style of the film because i mean looking back on i think i think a new hope is my favorite star wars film if not my favorite film of all time um but i think directorially and cinematically empire strikes back is the strongest star wars film and so it was a case of like well are we just going to try and emulate empire strikes back and just copy that you know you could probably make enough notes and absorb it enough that you could mimic that style but then it felt like well we're not doing anything new if we do that um and as as we were just figuring out the film in general one of the little experiments we did that worked really well is we knew there was going to be battles in the film um and so we got real war photography so like images from the middle east and vietnam and the south pacific and just photoshopped uh rebel helmets over the real soldiers and and instead of uh fighter jets in the background or helicopters we put uh, x-wings and u-wings in and and it was really strong imagery it was like fuck i want to see that film and everyone who came to visit even the studio disney and everybody would come around and we'd show them all these different concept art and there was suddenly this collection of like war imagery and everybody would fixate on that and go ah oh, like yeah let's i'd pay to see that movie and so we sort of took that as a license to be more a little bit more uh guerrilla i guess i don't know whatever you want to call it um with it all and and so we tried to create chaos a little bit in front of the the camera um and then it's that thing of, i think you've got two ways of directing you know in the simplistic terms there's the imperial way and the rebellion way and the imperial way is you say this is the storyboard this is what we're going to do it's going to be this shot followed by this shot followed by this shot followed by this shot the actor's going to stand there they're going to look that way they're going to say that line they're going to step on that mark the camera's going to do this and i've seen it all in my head and that's what we're going to shoot and that's fine and great and it works really well a lot of the time but um there's another way which i had to do in my first low budget film because i just didn't i couldn't plan anything which was let let roughly the idea unfold in front of the camera and then you kind of move and try and find the beauty in it and try and like construct it as it goes and it's more organic it's a lot more chaotic it's more scary um especially for people watching the dailies you know you can't you can watch a load of stuff and the camera goes down it's out of focus it runs around somewhere else and finds another bit and it i think it can scare a lot of people because they're like did you get the scene and you know a lot of, a lot of the reaction is like we don't know you know <laughs> and and you'd shoot the hell out of it you know you'd shoot a lot there's a lot of material that we got for this and and so then it was like which are we going to do and in the end we sort of did both and there was a simplistic view at the start which was maybe the empire will be stable and considered and very 70s sort of language and um and then the rebellion will be handheld but that started to feel limiting as well and and then we got into like oh maybe it's this scene is stable this scene is handheld this scene is stable this scene is handheld and even that started to feel wrong and so we just got into the habit of going you know what it's a shot by shot decision 
And if a shot feels like it should be organic, we'll do it that way. If there's something, suddenly you can cut to this beautiful sort of dolly or something over the back of someone or whatever, um, that suddenly, like it's whatever whatever felt right for that shot. Because I mean, you look at like adverts nowadays, like and you know commercials and music videos and stuff, they, they're, they're changing gear every two seconds, if not like 12 frames. And it, and it works, to, you know, I think it's very effective. And, and so we didn't want to have one approach for the whole movie. We sort of let it have these different flavors throughout because I think it's that contrast that gives it a value. If everything's the same style, eventually it just, you know, your brain gets used to it and stops registering it. But if suddenly you go from like stable and nice to suddenly like raw and handheld and then back to like some epic aerial thing, you you keep getting like, you know, affected by it. And so it was a complete mixture. So did you do any uh, storyboards or previs? Yeah, we did. But what we the way we would storyboard, um, uh, there's two main guys I use, Matt Olsop and John McCoy. And um, they're really concept artists, sort of. Uh, we didn't want to call it storyboarding because everyone's like, oh, I don't want to do storyboards. I'm a concept artist. And as you're like, it's not, it's not storyboards. Call it like concept boards, you know, or story art. I don't mind. <laughs> and so they would come around the flat and... The way we like to work is, or I really like to work, is you're always trying to find iconic images in a scene. You know, you're trying to find that 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 image that's going to outlive the film. You know, is the thing that ends up on a poster or something or a t-shirt. And and so um, with any any scene, what we do is we don't sort of do it chronologically and go, this is the scene. This is therefore what you know the order of events. It's just go randomly into the scene and go, what would be an amazing way of witnessing this moment? And like try and figure out you know, draw really badly and then they draw it beautifully. Um, try and figure out like shots and ideas. And then it's like like stops on the tube map, or, you know, um, or pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And once you've got like five or six, like what you feel is like, that's really iconic and nice. Then it's like, okay, how do we weave a thread through this and link these two together and these two? And try you're trying to make nothing be the weakest link, but inevitably things are. And so we storyboarded a lot of the movie, if to some extent, like Jeddah, it was hardest because that, we didn't really storyboard that at all, but that was like, there was a load of images that we know we wanted to get. Um, a lot of them didn't obviously end up in the film, um, but occupied territory and, and we'd even take like, you know, uh, stuff from the Middle East and that and, and, uh, and different war zones and, and, and then use them as a basis for, for a storyboard shot. And then when we found our favorites, you know, we'd, try and thread something through it. And it sometimes worked, sometimes didn't work. Um, but honestly, a lot, of, a lot of it was probably spontaneous as well. The stuff of the tank battle, that was not really planned. <laughs> we wanted it to feel like the crew were really there and really trying to survive. Like, you know, they're not stood in the middle of like crossfire and potentially getting hit. They were trying to hide on the rooftops and stuff. And so, so we would let it unfold and then just pick different positions around the tank and things and try and find like, you know, nice shots. But we wouldn't, Greg was amazing at being incredibly open-minded. I think he would have, I've never been so aligned with someone visually, like in terms of like, I did operate sometimes, but honestly, Greg's got the best eye in the world. And whenever I'd prefer him to have the camera every, every day, but uh, he was also a bit of a maestro with the lighting. We had these new lights, the LED lights, um, which, which were all operated off an iPad. And what could happen is like in the middle of a scene, you wouldn't have to stop to relight. You could just fade things down and other things up. 
And so it was like live mixing of all the lights. And so sometimes like if I was filming, you'd get a shot, you know, you'd be on Felicity or you'd be on like Riz or someone and then and then you'd be going, oh, shit, it's not very good. I'm gonna have to move in a minute, but let, his, let him finish his line. And you get to the end of the line, you go to move and you go, oh, that's beautiful actually. What happened? And and it'd be Greg backstage just going, get that down, get that up, you know, and just suddenly all the sculpting of the light would change. And it'd be, you wouldn't see it happen. It would just be very gradual during the shot. And um, and so there was a lot of little new technology that I think really helped the movie a lot. Yeah, and on a similar note, you guys seem to um, eschew uh, blue screens as much as possible, or green screens altogether, and uh, really mostly for set extensions and stuff. Uh, and how did how did you guys come to that choice? And and did you think that it was that did that how'd that work out for you? <laughs> yeah. Um, my background for like 15 years was visual effects. And so like the honeymoon period was well and truly over by the time you get to make a film like this. And you say to people like on day one, I don't want any blue screen, I don't want any green screen. And everyone get, takes that the wrong way and goes, oh, he wants to build the sets. Okay, oh, that's gonna be expensive, but great, yeah. And you go, no, 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 no. I, I just mean at the worst, we want to rotoscope around people. So we don't want to put a green behind someone we want to put that person in a real environment and then cut around them in the computer and stick the CGI environment behind them because there's something about really being like, if, you, if we were filming you now and I wanted to replace that wall with something kind of red and gray and but a totally different architectural design, it would look so much more real just shooting you now and cutting you out in the computer than if we stuck a big green thing behind you and then keyed it. It never, the, the way it bounces off the cheeks and just the ambience of the shot, it feels fake. You can sort of tell when it's happening. And so we always tried to film real stuff, but we knew we might be replacing as a, as a simple rule. It's like everything within like 10 meter radius of the camera was real, going to stay in the movie and things beyond it might get replaced depending on what ended up you know, being used in the final edit. And it was probably a nightmare for ILM because what normally happens is you go, you pre-approve all the shots, you know, and you sort of budget them. You say, okay, you can make this film because you've got 600 shots in the movie. Um, whereas we were like, we don't know what's going to be in the film, what's not going to be in the film. As we're filming, you know, they'd see loads of crazy things, but they wouldn't know if that was in, is that out? And so there was an agreement, which is we promise to behave ourselves and at the end of the cut only have 600 shots. And in the end, it went up to 1,700 so <laughs> it was it was just <laughs> like one of those things that happens but that was all approved that was that was uh Disney were very supportive um there was there were the the budget of the film initially because this was before the Force Awakens came out and so initially the budget for these movies these were considered like uh I don't know they were kind of reference to things like you know the District 9 of Star Wars type thing um like lower budget and and a lot of bang for the buck and I guess that's maybe one reason I was asked to do it because I'd, I'd done visual effects or something. But right. But in District Nine, it takes place on planet Earth, where you know people hold pencils that are just regular Earth pencils and stuff. And in Star Wars, there's not one thing, not one prop, not one set, not one anything that you don't create completely new, right? I mean, that's the crazy thing about doing these movies is that you like. On a normal movie, you're like, oh, this is set in a coffee shop, and so let's go find a coffee shop. And this yeah. kind of movie, you're going like, what's a coffee shop here? Is like, do people have what's space coffee like? What's the yeah. what is it? Is there an alien barista? Um, by the way, the coffee shop scene in your movie was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, <laughs> uh, but 
Um, let me ask you about, I, I kind of want to dig in more about the sort of uh, the looseness of how of your approach to making movies, which I think is really uh, what, what made the film feel so unique. Um, did you guys have a rehearsal process at all, or did uh, uh, was it just sort of like with the actors or beforehand, or was it there just was sort a, of... I mean, it was, what we would do sometimes is that AD, you know, who was brilliant, um, uh, Toby, Toby Hefferman, he... My AD too! Hey. <laughs> He's and, great. He's great, you guys. And uh, just out of being like, you know, a professional, he would, he understood that we didn't want to rehearse stuff, i.e., like, like, uh, like rehearse it to the point where it would, then it didn't have any spontaneity on the day. But he also wanted to have a rough plan of like, are we going to be roughly here and walking over there so they can rig like, you know, pyro and things like this or whatever it is they need to figure out. And, and so we would sometimes the night before the next day, if we could get the actors that were involved in the next day, they would come along. And even if we couldn't get them, we would just talk it through and say, well, I think they're going to be here. Then they're going to go down there and do that. And we'd probably be having to do the following shots. So maybe the first shot is this crane or whatever. And then it'd go, okay, and the guys would start rigging that, so it'd be ready first thing. So it was like, but that was as far as we would go rehearsal-wise. Because with the actors as well, we had a deal which was, you know, like, let's shoot the rehearsal. Like, because there's some magic that can happen sometimes the first time you do something. And people are surprised and don't don't know that someone else might say something. And, you know, like a lot of K2, um, who's Alan Tudyk, who played him, he, he had free reign to, well, everybody had free reign, but he would take it a lot more than others to completely improvise and say anything he wanted, whenever he wanted. And a lot of the great humor in the film is Alan himself. And we'd say, don't warn us, don't tell us, just do it. Because it'll get, a, it'll, you know, it'd be, more, it'd be more fun for everyone. And, and so, yeah, there was a lot of spontaneity and, and it, was, it was interesting. It was an interesting way to make a big, massive film because um, it's sort of scary, but I was more scared personally of, of not, not being scared like i think if you went this is going to work we will do this everything will be fine people will be happy um it can't go wrong then you feel like you get to the end of those processes whenever you feel like that and it's just a load of mediocre nonsense and so it was like okay let's go out on a limb but this could be the end of our careers um and so it was it, it was yeah it was a little bit nerve-wracking but i feel like i get more anxious when when you're seeing some amazing opportunity and you can't you can't grab it and you and you have to go you have to let it go and so like with the way we shot this something if something was a really nice moment like we did these things at the end of a day shoot and we'd always ring fence an hour and we called it indie hour and it was like it was just a way of the crew understanding like for an hour we're just going to do loads of random shit and and don't try and ask don't we can't explain and it would just be things that felt like i think this is a beautiful moment this is a great idea and some of the, a lot of the stuff in the trailer ended up through that process, like uh, I don't know, like Felicity in the tunnel where the lights come on around her. Um, that that she was just walking. We finished a shot, and she just started walking to the next shot, which would be at the end of the tunnel. And as she walked, someone switched the lights on because we're about to now do the tunnel. And the way they turned on, they went like like this. And she just someone called her, and she just looked around a little bit. And I was like, oh my god, that looked great. And it was like, stop, stop, stop. Like, everyone stop. Like, this will take, like, 10 seconds, please. Just roll the camera. And it was like, Felicity, just, just trust us. Just turn around. And I just get, like, just walk away. And Felicity, you know, she'd look around. 
And we and then obviously ten seconds turned into like half an hour, <laughs> and we probably did like seventeen takes. And that ended, and there's that feeling of like, what was that for? And it's like I don't know. It just felt good, and we carried on. And it was like, okay, maybe that'll end up in the edit. And I forgot about it. And uh, and then marketing like obviously show you the first cut, the trailer, and they're looking at the dailies and they're grabbing things, and they're like making their own thing, and uh, and you're like, oh yeah, great, okay, that shot, and. There was a lot like that, even Ben with the big planet behind him, the blue planet, and he's got the gun and he's sort of sat looking down. That was opportunistic thing that unfolded after a scene. We didn't say cut. And he just had this really good vibe about him. And so like, obviously no one can get in the way until the director says cut, so you just don't say cut. And you just like, and we had this great little situation where we'd dance floor the entire ground, which is like just flat boards, so the dolly can do whatever it wants. And it was really nice, Gary, the grip, like you could just direct him with your finger and he'd watch you and you'd just go like, like go in, you know, in, stop. And it'd be like, go that way, stop. And, and, like, and you'd just watch the monitor and you'd be sat there going like this and just trying to find these cinematic little moments and shots and things. And it, uh, that to me, that was when it felt like really like, like uh, you're getting to direct a film because you get that goosebumpy and you just can't explain it in words, but really cinematic vibe of brooding kind of looks and shots and and um and I I live for that stuff and but sometimes you just don't know where it's gonna go. You know what I mean? Someone comes up to you and says, Where's that in the movie or the scene? You like, I don't know. Like it's like running around the supermarket and you're just grabbing everything and you're putting it in the trolley. People go, What are you gonna cook? You go, I don't know. <laughs> the shop's closing in ten minutes. Like we're never allowed back in. Just grab everything. And then you leave and then you sit in the edit and then you go, what have I done? Like, this is, this is going to take us three years. And um, it was a long process cutting the film. It, 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 we had a lot of material, like way more than normal. Um, so everything just got crunched and pushed and everyone worked their socks off in post to get this film finished. But yeah. And so on the other side of the coin, um, talk about your day shooting at the Canary Wharf tube stop, which I think had to be very carefully prepped and planned um, because you only had a few hours to shoot there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, there's lo like, we tried, I mean, I salute everybody on production because they stuck to their promises of trying to make the film differently. And we said like, there was a, there's certain scenes where they had to run through Imperial corridors and stuff. And we were looking at the budget and we couldn't quite, justify constructing a massive set that was gonna last th three seconds. And I, my first job in television, um, I would go through this train station in London called Canary Wharf and this whole area, the Docklands, was very sci-fi, very sort of futuristic. And I always thought, oh, if I ever made a sci-fi movie, you know, with no money, I'd come back here. And, um, and we were just chatting and I said, well, why don't we just shoot it at Canary Wharf? And it's initially like the, <laughs> anyway, how are we gonna do this? And then it was like, well, why don't we shoot it at Canary Wharf or somewhere like that? And then they all thought about it. And, and like Neil Lamont, the production designer um, who worked with Doug Chang, they, he figured out a plan. And essentially, what, so what we ended up doing is we snuck in um, in the middle of the night, just as it was closing. There's all the guys in the suits leaving. And we're, it's all top secret. We can't tell anyone we're doing Star Wars. And they, they, the final train goes and they, they walk past us. We go in. And this team of art directors, uh, they spent about an hour and basically they transformed over all the signs. They'd built these imperial bit things that bolt on and they'd measured them all out and they perfectly fitted. 
and they transform the whole thing into this like you know Scarif kind of imperial base and uh and then we had four hours to shoot we shot all this stuff and then they quickly took it down everyone took their stormtroopers hel helmets off put them in bags and we walked out and there's, there's these guys in suits walked back into work the next morning and it was like the most frustrating thing in the world because you're sort of like you're like morning and they're like morning and you just want to go we just shot star wars <laughs> like like that guy's a stormtrooper like but you couldn't you're just like yeah all right all right and it was it, we, a lot of little silly things like that like that we did that um that felt exciting because they felt like you're not the more we you end up being like the characters in the film a little bit like the more it felt like we're not supposed to do this, the, m the better it felt. It was like, you know, you do become like the rebels in the, in the trenches with the actors and, and, and don't ask me who the Empire is, <laughs> but you sort of, you're sort of fighting to do this impossible task. Like, for us, the impossible task was make a good Star Wars film because, um, the, the, you know, the benchmark's so damn high. Like, those original movies, to me, are masterpieces. And, and those original movies are... Basically, independent films themselves—they're you know made by independent filmmakers uh, on you know sort of outside the system entirely, and uh, and now uh, you're keeping that spirit alive within a giant mega conglomerate. So, congratulations! No, no matter how nervous we ever felt, though, we always thought this is nothing. Imagine making the Han Solo movie; <laughs> those guys, fucking hell, like they're crazy. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, so, anyway, uh, costumes, hair, design, all of it, I thought, felt really true to the original sort of 77 feel. Uh, and the rebel technician mustache guy being my favorite uh, example of that. I love that guy for some reason. Um, obviously, some aspects were updated. Like, it's not all white dudes in the movie, for example. But... Um, when you were approaching the overall look, um, did you think of it as like a period film? Um, did you think of it just sort of like, oh, does this feel Star Warsy or not Star Warsy? Um, and uh, and and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, it was definitely a period film. I would say to everybody, don't do anything, don't have anything that doesn't feel like you would have been able to do that in 1977. And I, sometimes it's like, because Star Wars is, you think, did it predict the future? Like, it's still looks good today, Star Wars. I think the costumes and the designs look fantastic. And you think, is that because they're timeless or because we all fell in love with it? And to us, that's what things should look like. And and so, but the, the, the most obvious version of, I thought that was really good, was the graphics guys who did um, all the in-flight cockpit stuff and the stuff on the screens. Because there was such a temptation is to do like these layers of animation, like, you know, like, and too much stuff. And it was always like, no, it's just do what they did back then, which is like one image and then maybe other image, one image, you know what I mean? Other image. And like, so the animation had to be really simple and, and clean and the graphic design. And we, we've, you know, borrowed from a lot of films because Star Wars is, has a limited uh, grab bag of things because obviously it's a two hour movie. Um, and so we would look elsewhere. So we'd look at things like Ridley Scott's Alien and Blade Runner. Um, even things like the Andromeda Strain for like graphical references and stuff. And, and so any film from the late 70s, early 80s was like fair game as reference. And, it, and you know, it's pretty obvious, like we were all like in awe of films like Apocalypse Now. And, and that was a big influence on, on some of the look of some of the, you know, the combat sequences. Yeah, were there any other films that um, 
that you were inspired by for as touchstones for the movie? Um, yeah, one of my favorite films that n- not many people tend to have seen is a film called Baraka. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I and that on loop at parties. <laughs> Do you? Oh, yeah, it's so gorgeous. Yeah, and um, and that was a massive influence on me, full stop, but on we used a lot of, like, those shots in Jeddah and, like, just establishing shots of, mm-hmm. of cities and, like, it's, I never know how you pronounce his surname, but Ron Freak, Ron Fricky. I don't know him. I don't uh, know The director, him. and he, he anyway. Are you here? <laughs> Member of the no. DGA? Um, but anyway, films like that, that was great, and... Yeah, Blade, like Blade Runner, Alien, uh, Apocalypse Now, Thin Red Line. Like mm-hmm. these are the thing is though, I'm like mm-hmm. that film goes nowhere near those films in terms of their amazing movies. But you have to have a high aspiration, I think, when you make films. Like because I always think it's so full of compromise the process of making a movie. If you're not that thing of like, if you reach for the stars, you might get the moon or whatever people say. Like mm-hmm. you have to aim too high, and then and then you might make something okay. I think if you just aim for good. By the time everything, you know, you hit all the compromises, you, you have something bad. So, so you have this incredibly high aspiration, and the frustration of being a filmmaker, as you all know, is like you're always disappointed because you remember what it, that aspirational thing. Do you know what I mean? And then it just ended up wherever it ended up, and so you can never be pleased. You know, it's very hard to be happy, and and like looking at George going back and redoing the special edition of, you know, the original trilogy. Like I'm initially, you know, I was like, why, why are you doing this? They're brilliant. They're masterpieces. Don't touch them. And then now I feel like, oh, yeah, I get it. You know, <laughs> like there are always little things you want to tweak and didn't work out the way you wanted. And and that's sort of the beauty of being an audience versus a filmmaker is you don't bring any of that baggage with you. It just hits you for what it is. And you don't know what happened that day and why they didn't get what they really wanted. And, you know, what I mean, you just take it for what it is. Yeah. And uh, so the movie's uh, such a nuanced movie. There's lots of shades of gray. And, uh, you know, the good guys aren't all good and the bad guys are middle management trying to just make a name for themselves. Um, uh, Very sympathetic, I thought. Um, uh, So, uh, you know, was that always part of the the plan uh, and how, how, or did that evolve from there? Yeah, I mean, I think just trying to be more um, truthful with a film like this where you go, like the simplistic view back in the day was like we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, you know, and you achieve peace by wiping the bad guys off the map, and that's how that's how you get world peace. And now with the global media and the internet and everything, it's very you see all the different points of view on anything, and you realize that's not true and real. And everybody thinks they're the good guy. Everyone thinks what they're doing is for the right reasons, even if it's something terrible. If you were to talk to them, you'd hear their point of view. And I loved. I love the idea of Galen in the movie, Mads Mikkelsen's character. Um, he's kind of like the Robert Oppenheimer of our film in the, you know, the developing of a new, uh, like a super weapon to try and create peace. Like, that's why you do it. Like, why would these people do it? They did it because they wanted to create peace. And then they've realized they've done this terrible thing, maybe. And then they spoke out against it, tried to stop it. And, and on my favorite image, which I think just goes over people's heads and no one really ever brings up to me, but I really liked it was the idea of a father like being a great dad and a, and a loving dad to a child and he's got like the equivalent of like a Nazi outfit on mm-hmm. and he's got like the imperial badge and and he's putting it to bed and he's and he's just a wonderful father like really loving but he's wearing the evil outfit mm-hmm. and you just go how does this work because we just want to pick people up and put in a box and say mm-hmm. you're bad 
what are you? Let's have a look. Keep watching you. Okay, now you're good. You're okay. And people don't go in boxes. You know what I mean? Like, that's the problem is no one fits yeah. in a box. Like, everyone's a bit good. Everyone's a bit bad. You know, some a bit more than others. But, and I love the fact, like, trying to acknowledge that in something as big as Star Wars was really exciting. Yeah, I have expected to see a post-credit scene where Greedo was kissing his wife and kids <laughs> and saying, we'll make money to save the house if I, once I've catched Han Solo. Tomorrow I'm going to get him. Or I'll see you guys later. Um, that would have been good. Why did you tell us that great. before? Oh, that would have been great. Really make him sympathetic. Or the guys who do the turn on the green light at the uh, the green laser and the do Death you know who Star. That is? I know that's Ryan and Ron, right? Yeah. It's Ryan Johnson who's doing episode eight. We exchanged cameos. It was like, we, you were going to be in it. Yes, I, I dressed up to be uh, one of the rebel insurgents uh, in Jeddah, but then I had to go. Uh, do an interview for school for my kids, and I didn't want to be dressed as a outer space terrorist. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, uh, <laughs> we're just about out of time, so um, um, I think we'll just leave it at that. But uh, thank you guys very much for coming, and thanks to Gareth Edwards for making a, a beautiful movie. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.